conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York, the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also the senior pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. This is the Pastor Well Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ and be faithful in their church ministry. Today, we are especially privileged to have with us a former dean of the School of Theology, uh, Dr. Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And we're going to be talking about uh, preaching and theology, but uh, particularly we're going to be talking today about the pastor and politics. Dr. Moore, you are the president of the ERLC, and as such, you deal with the, uh, the political uh, world, uh, the way that pastors and the Southern Baptist Convention particularly engage social issues. Uh, tell me, at, at what age did you begin to feel a, a, a desire or even a compulsion to engage with uh, political and social issues? Well, I started to feel a call to ministry when I was 12. And uh, I told my pastor, and he said, okay, well, we're going to have you preach the Youth Sunday sermon two weeks from now. <laughs> and so I was a, a nervous wreck. And uh, he was really wise. At to 12. Do it at 12, yeah. They put a little a little box behind the pulpit so I could be seen. I still carry it around with me to, to <laughs> use all the time now. But uh, but I, I was a nervous wreck before and after. He was trying to you know throw me in the deep end of the pool, and he was showing me how to do it. But... After that, I started to kind of walk away from ministry and start walking toward uh, government. And it wasn't until I was um, serving in Washington for United States congressman. I was in the Library of Congress where they would give away discard uh, books to congressional staffers. And for whatever reason, I picked up this little free will Baptist pastor's manual, how to do weddings and funerals and whatever. Really? And when I got back to my apartment, I thought, why did I want that? And that's what, sort of what the Lord used to bring me back into ministry. And then later, you know, those, those various different aspects of life, not just in those two areas, but in a lot of different areas, I could kind of see how they converged together. How old were you at that, that point? Uh, that would have been 20, 21, somewhere around in there. Was there any event that, that like sticks out to you, like a political event that sort of com- more compelled you and interested you? Um, I don't know if there was a particular event. Uh, um, I just was always just, really dialed in to what was taking place. And, I, I was uh, 34. I was pastor at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Lexington. Mm-hmm. And a young African-American man guy named, named Tony Sullivan was shot. Mm. Police went into his apartment to arrest him. And he had surrendered, but a the the story was as the policeman was decocking his gun, the mm. gun went off and killed Tony Sullivan, mm. and riots began in Lexington. Mm-hmm. I was pastoring there, and uh, our church, Ashland Avenue at the time, was very close to the neighborhood where he was shot, a place called Bluegrass Aspendale, and I mean the the city went into. Uh, a panic. There mm-hmm. were cars being overturned and burned. And mm-hmm. I remember I went in to get my Seth, my youngest son's best friend, but lived in Bluegrass Aspendale. And there were riots in there. And, and I went in to get him and his brother. And I saw, I don't know, a, a phalanx of 
a hundred cops walking coming down the street in full riot gear. And I, our city was in turmoil. And I joined with uh, quite a few other pastors, particularly African-American pastors. It was amazing to me how quickly the government turned to preachers mm-hmm. and pastors to help quell yeah. the, the problem. Uh, I was the only white pastor that was asked to speak at the young man's funeral. I can remember that, the tension in the air. But it was a transformative event mm-hmm. in my life. I, I, I just saw the need to engage mm-hmm. on the, the public level. And, and it, it was something that stuck with me so much. Uh, what would you say to, to pastors? You know, if there's a pastor that is, you know, he's committed to exposition and he wants to preach the Bible, mm-hmm. is there a danger that he can get uh, so caught up in just preaching the text that he uh, ignores what's going on around? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a danger in the preacher who gets so caught up in current events that mm-hmm. he ignores the text? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you advise? Well, what I normally do is I will we essentially preach the same sermon from John 19, but I will preach it completely differently depending upon what sort of audience I'm in. So, for instance, if I'm in a place where you have um, a lot of people who are are tempted toward the kind of political idolatry uh, mm-hmm. that we have uh, in our, our culture right now, they're the people who uh, you know want to uh, cheer at uh, at every reference to some political uh, kind of ideology. I'm going to emphasize my kingdom is not of this world. We don't find our identity in politics. On the other hand, uh, I I preached the same message in front of a group of church planters who had seen that sort of politicization of the church and rightly rejected it. But like we so often do in the church, we tend to overreact to the last bad thing. And their, their temptation was toward a complete disengagement, don't reference anything at all. And in that case, I had to say, look, we're not only standing where Jesus stood, we're also standing in this system where Pilate stood, uh, which, which meant there's an accountability to citizenship. That doesn't mean, though, that we come in and, and, uh, and preach through public policy positions or endorse candidates or those sorts of things. What it means is that you shape and form consciences to be able to carry out their responsibilities. We already know how to do that when it applies to personal ethics. So are there some people who just get up and preach moralism, do this, do that? Are there people who preach legalism and say, here are all the things you need to be doing? The Bible doesn't specifically say yes. But you can't overreact to that by saying, well, let's just not talk about uh, personal morality. Talk about the gospel, and the gospel has implications then for personal morality. It also has implications for what we do as families together. It has implications for what we do as as neighborhoods together, and has implications for what we do as cultures and societies together as well. And this this shows itself nowhere more than in the family. Now, you've recently mm-hmm. written a book, uh, the Storm Tossed Family, that mm-hmm. was uh, Christianity Today's Book of the Year, I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, it is a fantastic book. Uh, specifically, how how is a pastor to minister to families in in this environment? Well, again, when you, it's the same sort of thing. I my one of my firmest convictions in life is what C.S. Lewis said uh, once when he said, "The devil never sends errors one by one, but two by two on either side of the truth." I think that is uh, that is everywhere in, in Scripture, and I think the same thing is true when it comes to the family. 
you can have some people who denigrate uh, the family and the importance of the role of the family and want to see themselves as kind of uh, hyper-individual, free from those constraints, neglect their families. You can also right. have some people who idealize the family in such a way that it becomes an idol, not just the people that we might think of who are kind of uh, helicoptered in uh, with their families, but sometimes even people who don't ha- might not have families, but who resent the fact that they don't have the sort of family that they right. imagine or someone else has. And so I think what Jesus does is to come in and affirm the goodness of God's creation in the family and to say it's not first. And, and that's the way that you actually are freed up to be able to love your family is by not seeing it as first. And that's, you know, I'll talk to people out in the world who are, uh, for instance, uh, cohabiting, not, not marrying and just right. living together. And sometimes I will expect that what they're going to try to argue with me about is from a low view of marriage. But what I find is they almost always have a super high view of marriage. That's fascinating. Where they're thinking, well, I, I can't get married until I find my ideal soulmate. Right. I know that everything is, uh, you know. And, and, and so that's this idealized view of marriage that causes them to have too low a view of marriage. And I think that happens in, with children. It happens with people relating to their parents. Uh, sometimes having this very I- idealized view causes us to resent the people who are actually in front of us. Right. And for a pastor, that even happens, I think, in our preaching. Yeah. A lot of times we, we get this idealized view of the way I want to preach or the way mm-hmm. someone else preaches, and it, it frightens us to pull back, and mm-hmm. particularly in political engagement, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you know we see Russell Moore doing it at a certain way, and so we think, well, that's for them. That's not for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, – God's called us to be salt and light. Mm-hmm. That's a huge part of what you do at uh, the ERLC. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let me ask you, you are an incredible preacher, uh, and your ministry and the ERLC is a very different kind of ministry than uh, pastors have. Do you ever do you ever miss pastoring? Do you ever long to preach to the same people every week? <laughs> Uh, yes and no. No in the sense that uh, what I'm doing is largely in terms of preaching, teaching, uh, equipping uh, people. Yes, in terms of what you mentioned, the same group of people uh, every week. That's one of the reasons why when I was here in, in Louisville at Southern Seminary all those years, probably the most important thing for me was teaching Sunday school. Uh, every week, going with the same group of people, going through the mm-hmm. uh, the same text. And what I realized in sort of the whirlwind of the first uh, few years of my current ministry was that I was I needed that. And so that's one of the reasons why I said, I'm going to make sure that I'm not gone every Sunday to some church. I'm going to be here, be where I live with the same group of people. And so that's what I'm doing right now, going through First Kings. Really? And it's, I it, did not know this. Yeah. And just in terms of my own psychology uh, in, the, in the biblical sense of psyche, well, right. you know, just staying centered in one particular flow of text and dealing with the same people, it, it just helps me in, in, really in every area of, of what I do now. Yeah, it's almost like uh, that's Jesus' idea. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. That you're, you're plugged in. Uh, and uh, how many children do you have? Five. And five sons. Five boys mm-hmm. and their ages? 17, 17, 13, 12, and 7. Uh, your 
your presence in their lives is mm-hmm. incredibly important. Well, and that's one thing I I learned one time. You know, the, the first few years in any ministry is you're you're having to uh, sort of establish things brand new. It's it's a whirlwind. And my smallest son said um, early on Sunday mornings, mommies go to church, daddies go to the airport. Wow. And I realized, no, 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 this is not this is not the way we're going to we're going to live. And so that caused some rethinking in terms of in terms of schedule because I wanted to have. I mean, I'm gone a lot sure. uh, during the week, but I wanted to make sure that I'm home. Uh, on Saturdays, and particularly that I'm home on Sunday mornings as much as is humanly possible with them. How, how's it How's it going with uh, your sons growing up? You, you know, I am uh, loving the teenage years, and I was worried about them. I mean, all my life I was thinking, oh, my goodness, you hear all these horror stories about the teenage years and so forth. And we're really enjoying getting to see sort of the kind of men uh, that our sons are and are going to be. And so it's something I'm really taking delight in. Now, Maria, my wife, uh, she knows that I'm constantly saying, you know, I'll show her a picture from Time Hop that shows a picture from, you know, five years ago. And I'll say, look at this. Look at how much has changed in five years. Five years from now, they'll be however old. And she, can can we go a day without your doing that? You know, that's... uh, that's, that's you, like. you could have grandchildren five years from now. I, well, hope not, but well, that's 17 possible. To 22, that's yeah, not, I, I mean, guess that's true. I, I, I guess know, that's true. Yeah. I was uh, yeah. 23 when our first was born. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was 22 when we married. Yeah, I guess yeah, that's true. I mean, it, yeah. It's hard for you to picture yourself we were, as a grandfather. We were, we were much you, that's more the, mature. That's yeah. when the real fun starts. <laughs> well, I, I do think it is true. I think. Do you think adolescence lasts longer these days? Uh, you yeah, know, I mean, I, I, I think so for for reasons other than, you know, what people often say is, well, millennials are sort of spoiled and Gen, Gen Zers are kind of spoiled and they're they're del- I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think instead is that they have a very different sort of ecosystem to try to navigate than Gen Xers or uh, or baby boomers did uh, before them. So there, there was an entire structure in place for a lot of people to sort of move on out into careers and families and so forth. Yeah. It just isn't, that substructure just isn't there. How anymore. old were you when you left home? Uh, well, I, I went off to college at 17. Yeah. And um, Did you ever come back to live? Mm, oh, I came back to the same town to live, but not at my parents' house to live. No. So you, you left home at 17? Mm-hmm. And from then on, you were on your own. Right. I left home at 18. Mm-hmm. I was from then on on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was not able to pay anything in my college. I mm-hmm. had to get scholarships. I mean, I, I, I don't see that happening much now. Right. right. Is our, our parents not uh, coaching their kids toward that? Is it some, some of that I think is true. They, I mean, for instance, um, I never bought uh, I never had anyone. No one ever bought me a car. Uh, right. I worked yeah. at a grocery store and bought same my here. own car. Same here. And the same thing is true for my kids. Uh, my 17-year-old sons, they have cars, but their cars I haven't paid anything on. I don't pay the insurance. I don't pay the gas. I didn't pay for the cars. They've done all that working for it, but that's really unusual. Uh, yeah, they, you, they, yeah. they don't know many people who are in that situation. Yeah. Well, my dad pulled me aside when I was in the ninth grade. He said, I need to tell you two things. He said, uh, if you ever have a car, it'll be because you bought it. Mm-hmm. And you paid for it. Mm-hmm. He said, I, you know, I mean, my dad was country preacher at, mm-hmm. at, at the time, uh, and he didn't have much. 
He said, I also can't pay your way through college, so you need to keep your grades good, get mm -hmm. the scholarship, because I, I, I can't help you, and if you don't want to be working all the time through college, you need to think about that now. Mm -hmm. It was a, an incredible favor, and I took his advice and did both things. Yeah, it was an incredible favor for me. It was also a little bit spiritually dangerous uh, really? later on because I, I had this mentality. I've, I've worked for everything. Uh, I, I'm not dependent upon anybody else. I didn't want to be dependent upon anybody else. And so when things would happen in my life, uh, later on, like for instance, uh, when Lord was leading Maria and me to adopt, we had no money. Uh, I was a doctoral student here. I you and a group of other people uh, raised some money and gave us some money uh, for the adoption process. That just about killed me because mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to. And what I somebody finally showed me was that was a pride issue. Uh, I didn't want to be served and be ministered to. And that was something the Lord had to cause me to repent of. It was really a, a self-sufficiency and a pride that I had. Well, our hearts are idolatrous. Mm -hmm. and, and whatever way we lean, right. we, we, we can find cause to be rebellious uh, mm -hmm. against the Lord. Um, uh, I know you're called to do uh, what you do, uh, but uh, are there any – are there any particular challenges you say, oh, this is just, and th this is the toughest part of the job? Like, uh, you've received an awful lot of criticism from mm -hmm. time to time because of stance you take. I know right. that might be news to you. I'm, I might be telling you something yeah. you don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, is, is that the toughest part of what you do, or is the being away? What, Not what you, what's really, the, because I don't, um, I don't pay that much attention to that uh, for, all, for all sorts of, of reasons. I mean, anybody who is going to be speaking to what does it look like to follow Jesus and live out the Christian life in 2019. Uh, if It would worry me if I were not receiving criticism because um, that would mean that I'm not being understood uh, in terms right. of what I'm, what I'm saying. The status quo really does, in all of our lives, really does have to go. And that's something that I, uh, I practice myself as I'm just doing devotional uh, Bible reading, the first question I ask myself is, what about this text do I not believe? And we we'll say, well, I believe all of it. And cognitively, of course, I do. But if I don't sense some part of me trying to kick against uh, this scripture, then what I conclude is I'm not really understanding this. Because if I'm a sinner and the, the scripture is speaking to me, then there's going to be part of me who that's not going to want to hear this. And so uh, sometimes the, the thing, well, there was uh, one particular uh, sermon I was giving, and I said the, uh, the worst thing could happen after this sermon is for everyone to say that was great, because that yeah. will mean that none of us understand what it is that we're, we're talking about. Yeah. Here. Well, uh, I want to talk to you about your preaching. Let me tell you i think you are one of the best preachers that i know oh thank you i i love to hear you preach uh, and you truly craft a sermon uh you know what strikes me uh there are a couple of things that strike me about your preaching one is it's christ-centeredness that is always a given uh but you craft your endings now i want to i want to come around to that because uh, I don't want this to be an insult to you. This this is a, a compliment, but you remind me of Fred Craddock, the mm -hmm. way he mm -hmm. ends the sermon. Mm -hmm. Now, you believe much more than Craddock believed, right. but everybody agreed Craddock was a master in the pulpit. 
And uh, on my Vimeo channel, I have a a video of Fred Craddock preaching here in chapel, mm-hmm. I think 1984 or 86, somewhere in there, a sermon called No One Rise from the Dead. Mm-hmm. It's his, his sermon on the, the rich man and Lazarus. And he ends that sermon. It's like just a drop mic. Uh, at the end of his sermon, you know, he, he, he tells this illustration and he asks a question, what did I want? What did I want? The same as you. Isn't that true? And he sits down. And like you're like, is that it? Mm-hmm. It's a very dramatic ending. Mm-hmm. And Craddock typically did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently heard you preach a, a sermon uh, from First Kings on uh, Isaiah's uh, going to uh, Hezekiah mm-hmm. and rebuking him for showing the, the treasures of the temple, mm-hmm. and, and Hezekiah uh, responding, "Well, you know, wh- why not? This is you know, as long as I am uh, this." Uh, how's it go? Peace uh, and security in my time. Yeah, as mm-hmm. long as there's peace and security in my time. Mm-hmm. You ended that sermon. Well, during the sermon, you set it up. Uh, and I want to point this out. This is how you craft. You At the beginning of the sermon, you reference the REM song, Losing My Religion. Mm-hmm. You talked about how you know anytime there's someone who deconverts and mm-hmm. they give a news report on it, they play Losing My Religion. And you quoted the song, uh, That's Me in the Spotlight, et, et cetera, and and the end of that chorus says, uh, "I've said too much. I haven't said enough." Mm-hmm. You preach the sermon, just a brilliant exposition and encouragement and rebuke and all the things that good preaching is. And at the end of the sermon, you come back to those lines with this beautiful inclusio, a bracketing of the sermon, and you said, uh, "I've said too much. I haven't said enough." I thought it was an incredible ending. Well, that's all mostly uh, just for me to be able to hold uh, the sermon together in my mind. That's mm-hmm. largely what that is. And a, large, uh, a good bit of it is kind of subconscious. So, for instance, I didn't decide to end that way until right before I did it. At the, at the sermon. I, I intended to come back to losing my religion, but in a different way. Really? Yeah. And so that, you know, for me, I, 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 sometimes people say, how do you prepare sermons? And I always say, I don't want to tell you because I don't want you to do it because it's not a good model that I would give That's to right. you. But I have to, it's kind of like for me, writing a sermon is kind of like going to sleep. Uh, if you sit there and think, I've got to go to sleep, you're not going to go to sleep. I've got to almost trick myself. And so I have to kind of meditate uh, for a long time on the pastor scripture where all of this stuff is going on, but I'm not paying attention to the fact that I'm actually crafting the sermon. So a lot of it is walking around, driving, just sort of thinking through uh, the text. And then it all kind of, for me, congeals at the last minute. Uh, in terms of the adrenaline almost has to hit before I sit down and write anything out. Otherwise, I just have to, I just have to do it all over again. And that's, I mean, I've written things long before I've preached them, and then it's useless. It's dead. It's yeah. useless. I mean, I, I, you've got to get up in the pulpit full mm-hmm. of it and just like, like a pregnant woman ready mm-hmm. to right. be delivered of this child. Right. And you, you can't work a gestation period up. Right. That's you know, right. That, that, that takes time. It, that's right. It uh, is a fermentation, it, yeah. you know, a, uh, a, a stirring of the spirit. Yeah. And to just get up 
cold turkey and and do it something that you long ago felt but now you're trying to right. get it back i did that recently uh-huh. uh not too long ago I, you know i had all kinds of other preparations i've been invited to preach somewhere else and i thought oh i'll, I'll come back and do this i did this before at buckron this mm-hmm. worked great and i just didn't spend enough time with the text before i got up to preach it yeah. and wow yeah it felt awful yeah you've never had that experience i have that experience often and it's it's for me anyway there has to be this sense of a text where i would want to if we were having coffee to say look at this i've never seen this before in second kings chapter 20 yeah what do you think about that so if i've got that sort of on my mind that's what i need uh, in order well by the way you did that for me in that sermon that the hezekiah's question well why not as long as there's peace Mm. and security in my time you know, I've read that many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, oddly enough, he doesn't say it exactly the same way in, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 39. 39. Yeah. But it was great. And I love that aha moment when you hear someone preach. You mm. know, well, I've never seen that. It really spoke to my heart. Mm-hmm. I've got to tell you, you'll appreciate this. We both have a common dear friend in Dr. Al Muller. We mm-hmm. both worked for him. But one time, uh, Dr. Muller preached a sermon in chapel on uh, Jesus I know and right. Paul I know. I remember that. But who are but who you? Are you yeah. Right. And throughout the sermon, he kept asking that question. Yeah. And, you know, when he got to the end, he ended the sermon, he prayed as he does. I told him later that day, I said, You you missed your cratic moment. Yeah. He said, What? What? Urshel, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, you, you had the perfect setup for a cratic ending. He said, What? What do you mean? I said, You should have ended the sermon like this Jesus I know and Paul I know. And then just sit down. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's his response. I would never do that. That is pure theatricality. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I always enter a sermon in prayer. Well, I want to tell you, uh, I love the way you craft it. You you have that instinct for really driving it home and leaving a congregation with this resonance. And by the way, that text does that. And mm-hmm. so I, I think you you did Thank that you. extremely, extremely well. Thank you. Uh, other than family members or preachers, who who shaped you? Well, I mean, I would have to say my home church as a as a whole really shaped me. And that was where? Uh, Woolmarket Baptist Church in Biloxi, Mississippi. Biloxi, Mississippi. My, father, my grandfather had been pastor there before I was born. Uh, but those people, uh, and I would say actually probably more important in my life than preaching was uh, hymnody. And Sunday school, uh, I I would not be where I am in any way spiritually if it had not been for Sunday school, and it was Sunday school that many people would say was done badly. Yeah, because it was you know people who didn't know how to do let's sit down with the King James Bible yeah. and let's all go around the room and read and then we're going to go through it. But that's exactly what that's, I needed, and so those yeah. sorts of um, the rhythms of the. I mean, I was in a KJV-only church, not out of theological conviction. They just didn't know there was anything else. That's right. They were just suspicious of yeah. everything else. Well, I don't think they just even knew, knew there was anything else out there. Oh, really? So I, those rhythms of the KJV yeah. have really shaped and formed me in, in ways I don't even know. So that I will—I don't preach from the King James Version. I preach from the ESV usually. Yeah, but when you quote it, it comes out King it James. It comes out King James, yeah. I, I, I noticed that mm-hmm. uh, and listened to you. It does the same thing for me. I must tell you a story. Mm-hmm. Second grade. I was in second grade, and we had a spelling bee. Now, I always won the spelling bees. I was a great speller, and yeah. uh, 
and the word subtle was given. Yeah. And I watch every kid in front of me go down. And, and I'm, I'm smug because I know there's a B in this word and nobody else knows yeah. this. And so the word comes to me and I say, subtle, S-U-B-T-I-L. Yeah. And the teacher says, no, that's wrong. I said, no, ma'am, that's not wrong. She said, Herschel, that's wrong. I said, no, ma'am, that's not wrong. She made me sit down. I was not happy. Every other kid missed the word. So everyone who went down on the word got to go back up. I went on to win the spelling bee, and she called me up to get whatever little prize she had, which I was not having it. I was yeah. not a happy camper. Yeah. She could see my displeasure, and she said, what is wrong with you? I said, I did not miss that word. She said, yes, you did. And I said, no, ma'am. And she had a King James Bible on her desk, which that in itself says something, doesn't right. it? This is right. a public school. Yeah. I said, may I borrow your Bible? And I turned to first uh, to Genesis Just chapter three. 3. Yeah. And I showed her. Now, the, the serpent was more subtle, oh, S-U-B-T-I-L, than any beast in the field. And I said, see right there. She laughed, and she said, oh, that's the old spelling. I said, well, it's in the Bible. It's good enough <laughs> for Moses. It's good enough that's for exactly us. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> I, and by the second grade, I yeah. was already that shaped by mm -hmm. the King James Version. Mm -hmm. I will also tell you, later, as a freshman at Michigan State University, I got to take a PhD seminar in Shakespeare, and mm -hmm. I was so far ahead of the game. Right, of course. Because that of that course. was the language of, that I had grown up yeah. with. Yeah, And uh, I, I, too, love the rhythms of the King James. Mm -hmm. I'm in no way King James only, but I love it. And yeah. when I quote it, it still comes out that way. Yeah, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. I mean, yeah. that's just, uh, yeah. You can't hear it any other right. way. You know, you are a, a man of literature. You, you like... Flannery O'Connor, mm -hmm. you're like uh, Walker Percy. Mm -hmm. uh, do you do you have any affinity with any contemporary authors? Is there anybody writing today that you like like yeah, that? I, yeah, I like. Um, I read a lot of contemporary fiction. I just uh, finished uh, this um, this book by uh, Leif Inger, uh, who's a author out of the Midwest. Uh, wrote this book called um, Virgil Wander. Uh, that I found really compelling. I read anything that Marilyn Robinson writes, uh, her Gilead trilogy, and then her her nonfiction essays as well. She's a brilliant essayist. Yeah. And um, I was really, when I, I talked to her on uh, on my podcast um, a few months ago, and I just was kind of in awe of her uh, to, to get to have that conversation. But she anything she writes, I, I read. Anything Wendell Berry writes, I read uh, as well. And you've gotten to meet Wendell Berry. Yes, mm -hmm, yes. And it was, uh, you know, one of the things Wendell Berry said to me, because I, I went out to his house one time, I was thanking him for sort of the way that his writings have, have, uh, have uh, influenced me. And he said, well, you know, isn't it something how uh, God sends just the right person at just the right time, just the right book at just the right time, just the right conversation at just the right time? And I have thought about that probably every day since he said that because I look back and say that's exactly right yes you know all of these things you and some and most of them I probably don't know how right. how it, it does that but. big doors swing on little hinges mm -hmm. and the, those little decisions uh, and events are often the the thing that God uses to propel you into mm -hmm. a, a new chapter or some great act of uh, obedience to him I, I'm curious have you read any of Robert alters uh, yeah, translation of the Hebrew. Yes, Bible I have. Here. I'm reading that right now. I am too. And uh, you know, it's really. I'm uh, writing a review of it. For, oh, are you? Uh, yeah. The Gospel Coalition, uh, and I'm in love with. I it. am too. I told yeah. Johnny. I said I, I I feel almost bad that 
someone who doesn't even profess to be a Christian right. is feeding my soul I like know. this. I know. I know. But he, what he does with the text, the structure yeah. of the text, the use of the words, the, uh, his the use of the so, words, and then uh, the little commentary notes. I mean, you, the, you just opened the so page. Rich. There's not much. It doesn't look like there's much there. But he yeah. uses every every word. I it. cannot imagine preaching an Old Testament text without at least reading Alter's translation of it and his commentary right. notes on on how he translated yeah. it. You it's know somebody else who was that way uh, for me is Leon Cass's commentary on Genesis. Also a Jewish, non-Christian writer. Yeah. But uh, the, just the literary analysis of Genesis. Yes. Uh, so much so that there are things that you... Uh, for instance, Genesis 3, when he's talking about the serpent, and he talks about the connection in the ancient Near Eastern world of the serpent with both a kind of hyper-rationality, a kind of reptilian, and appetite. It's, a, right. it's essentially a, a moving esophagus uh, is what a snake is, and that both of those two things show up in that text in Genesis. I think about that all the time. Right. Yeah, well, Alter affects me that way mm-hmm. as well. Um, all right, I've got sort of a lightning round here okay. as we wrap things up. I just want to ask you a few questions and get just a very quick response from you. All right. Uh, what preacher do you most enjoy hearing? I uh, most enjoy hearing my uh, home church pastor uh, who's probably 90 years old now. And when I, whenever I get to hear him or whenever I get to hear a, a recording of it, I'm always blessed. Feed your soul. Mm-hmm. Huh? What non-biblical historical figure would you most like to meet? Anybody in history, but not in the Bible. Uh, I'd like to meet a guy by the name of Andrew Fuller, uh, oh, really? who was a, a great uh, English Baptist uh, theologian that I admire a lot. Well, if you've met Michael Haken. Maybe. Right. Yep, yep. All right. If you could preach in any pulpit in the world, anywhere in the world, other than your church, uh, where would where would that be? Uh, two places. Uh, okay, one of them too. is uh, All Souls Church because John Stott has meant a lot to me, and I'm, I'm preaching there this summer, so wow. I'm looking forward to that. A dream realized. Uh, yeah, and then uh, to preach again uh, at my home church, uh, you know, where I preached when I was I was twelve. I would probably rather preach there than anywhere uh, in in the world. That, that's such a grace of God. Mm-hmm. What's the greatest country song ever? Uh, I think it's a tie. Okay. Uh, between We're getting two first. Yeah, here. yeah. I think it's a tie between He Stopped Loving Her Today, George Jones, and uh, Chris Christopherson, I think is the, and not the best singer, but probably the no, best songwriter. definitely not the best singer. Yeah, but probably the best songwriter. And I think Sunday Morning Coming Down, just as an expression of, of melancholy and regret, yeah, is about as good as it gets. He wrote that while he was a janitor. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, I'm going to disagree with He Stopped Loving Her Today, but I, it, only because it gives the, the the punchline away in the title. First line of the song is, he said he'd love her till the day he died. Mm-hmm. And the title of the song is, he stopped loving her today. So you know from the very first line, that guy died. <laughs> I don't think most people do, though. I uh, think they think it's a, you know, I think, they, I think they're surprised. I think it's a pivot there's, song. There's, uh, what's funny is I told Tanya that recently. She said, what? The guy yeah, died? The guy died. That's said, right. Yes. yes. Just, anyway. All right. What, what gift did I give you that you cherish? You gave me a drum head. Uh, from a Highwayman uh, tour that is signed by Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, uh, Merle Haggard, uh, and somebody else. Willie. Willie, of course, Willie Nelson. Yeah. And uh, so I have that uh, displayed uh, in my office. And uh, when I was moving, 
from from Louisville, uh, some of my stuff that the moving company was bringing turned up missing, and that was one of the things that was missing. Oh, and my. I was just desperate, and it was the widow's coin uh, from the <laughs> parable until it showed up. Oh, well, I'm delighted that you enjoy that. You pray for me to think of it. And when is Johnny Cash's birthday? His birthday is February 26th which uh, you and I were recording this in 2019, which means it would have been his 87th, I believe his 87th birthday. Wow. Yeah, 1932 yeah. when he was born. And you're a big cash fan. Yeah, I'm a big cash man. And uh, one of the, uh, I just was reading uh, recently, someone said, someone who sounds like Merle Haggard is a traditionalist, but someone who sounds like Johnny Cash is a Johnny Cash impersonator. That's exactly uh, There's right. only one. I think that's, that's exactly true. right. Well, man, uh, my dear friend Russell Moore, it has been a joy to have you. Thank you for being with us Thanks on the Pastor Well podcast. And thank you to all of you who tuned in. Uh, if you've not yet subscribed, make sure you do so on YouTube or on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. I look forward to seeing you again on Pastor Well.